Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, where we were last week. We have a shorter time in the Word, typical Sundays where we have the Lord's Supper. Should be just the right amount of time needed to address the actual content now of the parable of the sower, having kind of gone over some of the background and ancillary teaching that that comes along with it in the Bible. So let's get right into it. Let me say a prayer for us, and then uh, we'll read some of it, and and I'll make some comments for us, right? Because I have some other verses I want us to look up in conjunction with this as well. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, dear Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together here now, and we thank you, Lord God, for your word. Your word is life-giving and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. Your word, when sent by you, always accomplishes its purpose, Lord God. And so... We set aside significant time to read the scriptures when we're together, Lord God. My prayer is that this would just be an extension of the time that privately, Lord, we spend with you reading the word as well. But here we have this time, and I pray, Lord God, that you'd help us to listen and be attentive. Help me to speak as I ought. And I pray, Lord God, that all of us would be hearers of your word and doers of your word. Help us to listen to understand and receive, to believe, and to go out and put into practice the things that we learn. You have redeemed us totally by your own work and your own grace and your own goodness. Now we are yours. And so being yours, being your elect, holy and beloved, we pray for you to teach us and strengthen us to give what is of our lives here on earth to your service. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in the parable of the sower, we read the details of the parable. Well, we read the parable itself, which started in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 3. And, you know, he went out. I won't read the whole thing again. I'll just summarize it to say that a farmer, a sower of seed goes out and sows seed. And as he's going, some of it falls by the wayside and the birds of the air come and eat it up. Some of the seed falls on stony or rocky ground where there's no capacity for it to dig down into the earth and form roots. And so it springs up quickly, but then as soon as the sun hits it, it's scorched and it's burned up and that's the end of it. Some of it falls on ground where thorns grow up uh, alongside of it. And so presumably the nutrients in the soil are sucked out of it. And as this, uh, as this grows up, it causes the seed that the farmer has sown to grow up and not produce any fruit. But some of the seed fell on good ground. And the seed that fell on grew ground, uh, the seed that fell on good ground produced a crop that grew up and produced fruit. Some of the plants reproduced 30-fold, some 60, some 100, but they all produced good fruit. That was the parable itself. And then there came some other 
things that, that we talked about because Jesus addressed it. He addressed why he spoke to them in parables. I won't go over that again. We jumped over to one of the parallel accounts where very importantly, I think, Jesus said, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand the rest of them? Thereby setting aside the parable of the sower in a sense as the key to all of the parables. Uh, But then we get to the point where Jesus actually explains the the, the parable itself. And so look at verse 18. And this is what we'll emphasize now today in our limited amount of time uh, is the, uh, the explanation that Jesus gave for this. This is really, I guess, now the heart of it. Verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word with joy and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty and some 30. So that's Christ's own explanation of this parable that he identified as, indirectly, but identified as the key to understanding all of the parables. So let's just go right into it, because you remember the different... I mean, the seed is the first thing that's identified. You remember the different grounds that he described that, it fall, that fell on, and those grounds it would seem, represent the hearts of of people. Look at this. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, so stop right there. The word of the kingdom. What is the word of the kingdom? This is a way to describe the gospel itself, right? Because Jesus, as in all of his parables, is teaching about the kingdom of God. And this parable seems to, as we said last week, indicate the most important thing you need to know about the kingdom of God, which is who's in and who's not, right? And so Jesus it describes his, uh, the seed that is being sown as the word of the kingdom. And that's what evangelism is like. That's what evangelism is maybe best described as, is scattering seed. And this, this leads us to... Uh, other concepts that we learn in the scripture where the apostle wrote about how some plant and some water, but God grants the increase, right? That takes you right back to this Jesus-given concept of the word of God in, in the parable being represented by a seed. You know, So even before you get into the exact meaning of what Jesus is getting at, for those of you, which I should be able to say those of us, meaning all of us, who are endeavoring in our lives to reach out to other people with the gospel, 
know that all we're doing is scattering seed when we go out with the word of God. But it is some people will go and they'll preach the gospel maybe to someone who's never heard it for the first time. That's like someone who sows seed. Someone else will come along and maybe have a chance to share the gospel with someone who's heard it before, but they haven't understood it. So they kind of take them along. They kind of keep going. That's like the person who waters, right? And so really that's all we do is we scatter seed and we water it. We scatter and we water. We scatter, we sow, we plant and we water. We plant and we water and we plant and we water. Increase is always given by God. God is the one that causes the seed to like produce fruit. So even in all of that, you have that good encouragement right there that it reminds you of. But in Jesus' parable, he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, and the idea here of understanding it, I think, can encompass a broad spectrum of responses. Not understanding it, I don't think, should be limited to just simply they don't have the mental capacity to understand it. Because I don't think the Bible really describes anywhere as faith and salvation being having as a core requirement a certain degree of intellect, though the Word of God is something that is understood, right? But yet at the same time, when it talks about not understanding it, it's talking about really not receiving it. That is to say, where that person is in their life, You know, the Word of God comes to them and it strikes them as something that they simply cannot bear, they cannot receive, they cannot understand. The most most intelligent person in the world, uh, whoever it may be, but among the most intelligent people in the world, the most educated in, in worlds of academia or science or whatever, you know, it's possible to come to them with the Word of the Gospel and share that with them. And it's not that the mental capacity is not there. It's that it strikes them in such a way that it becomes like an offense to them. You know what I mean? And so they're not able to spiritually understand it. They're not able to receive the Word of God. There's the effect, of course, always of who? Satan, who is active, the Bible teaches us, in suppressing the knowledge of God in the world, even appearing as an angel of light and offering, uh, as he is able, alternatives that appear good. That's the idea of being an angel who is a messenger of light, which represents goodness and knowledge. So even Satan is active in offering this world all sorts of other things that they can give themselves over to so that when the word of God comes to them, the word of God, the word of the kingdom, which is a word that starts by confronting a sinner in their sin and brings them, uh, attempts to move them to repentance and then a faith in the one God who created the heavens and the earth and his only begotten son and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, that strikes that person as an offense because Satan has done so effectively bringing different things into the world that people give themselves to. Someone might have the gospel preached to them and it may be something as simple as, I don't think church would be fun and I don't really particularly feel like giving up the things in my life that I enjoy for the purpose of devoting myself to this thing. Or... You know, I mean, in the modern world, you have the whole concept of God has been kind of turned the page from. 
as we've spoken of in previous messages, and people have given themselves over to humanistic and atheistic philosophies of, of evolution and existence, and, and you see all sorts of manifestations of that in society you know, today. So there are all sorts of reasons why a seed might fall by the wayside. That's the point. The birds of the air come and they snatch it up, is what Jesus said in the parable. So the, the wayside... The wayside hearers of the word of the kingdom, maybe we should say, are those who hear the word of God and know. Know. Now, the thing that's frightening is that we know that out in the world, there are a lot of wayside hearers of the word of God. But the thing that is a little bit frightening is that it is possible that also in the church, there are wayside hearers of the Word of God. There are people in the modern world who come into churches for various reasons and with various motives because they're offered various things. And I talked a little bit about this last week, so I don't want to belabor it, but that's why the Word of the Kingdom needs, needs to be the thing that we're giving out. The ministry of a church must focus on the Word of the Kingdom Going after people must focus on the word of the kingdom. We're not simply trying to recruit people because they find friendship, because they find uh, a certain amount of, of, of social interaction that they like. You know, these things can have their effective uses, and obviously they do, but the thing that is the seed that produces the kind of fruit that the Lord is looking for is and only is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have to be careful that in our church and in churches all over the place, among the church, that we don't have a bunch of wayside hearers sitting there because they've just become comfortable with the fact that they're never confronted in their sin. They're never confronted with the fact that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there is no hope of salvation, etc., etc. So there are wayside hearers. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. The gospel must be received and understood and believed and responded to. The person who casts aside the preaching of the word of the kingdom loses it. Do you understand? It's, listen, hearing the word, this, this clearly tells you what? Simply listening to God's Word doesn't save anybody. It must be received and understood or the enemy comes and snatches it away. And what happens sometimes in churches that mean well is people that have not really truly responded to the Gospel and have had the Word of God snatched away from their hearts continue to go and continue to be received in churches because they're nice and they come and they like it and they're there, Right? That's a dangerous situation, certainly for the person, above all, and potentially even for the church, right? But listen, wayside hearers of the word of God are those who they hear the word of the kingdom, they do not receive it. They do not understand it, and they don't receive it. And so what was sown is snatched away by the wicked one, okay? That's number one. Then, secondly, but, verse 20, But he who received the seed on stony places, and Jesus tells us straight up, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, 
but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Right? And so what happens here? This is the seed that fell on the rocky ground and it doesn't dig down any roots, right? And so this is a person who, when they hear the word of God, they're unlike the wayside here because the wayside hearer, when they hear the word of God, it's just, eh, no, right? They don't receive it. And so the wicked one comes along, yoink, snatches it away. And that's good. The, the birds of the air just devour it up and it's gone, finished. This is potentially more dangerous. This and the next one, the one where the seed falls among the thorns, are the ones that are wrought with the most danger. Because this is the person who, when they hear the word of the kingdom, how do they respond? Do they respond with the hand? No. How, you know what I mean by the hand, right? Is that still a thing? Talk to the hand? Is that like, like so 2012 or something like that? And it's not... But, but are these people who respond with the hand? No, they're not. What does it say? These, are, these, these, these rocky ground hearers, these are people who when they hear the word of God, they receive it what? What's it say? With joy. Yeah. Yeah. They receive it and, and they like this. Yes. And it strikes them on a certain level that brings joy to their hearts. But it doesn't strike them on a salvific level. It doesn't strike them at a level that any real power is happening. It brings them pleasure. It brings them joy. They like what they hear. But when they maybe begin to take some steps or move in the direction of whether it's going to a church or reading the word or, or, or starting to get involved, what happens? What does it say? What do we get? What does every Christian at some point in his life, and usually right from the beginning, experience if they really, properly, truly, fully devote themselves to the Lord Jesus and to His Word? Trouble. That's what Jesus... Listen, one of the precious promises of Jesus is what? In the world, you will have tribulation, right? But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And persecution arises because of the word. Not just generic trouble. We all experience trouble in the general sense. All the time. You might be sitting here right now. And there's, 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 uh, before you came in, you left some trouble outside. And when you go back out, you expect to find it again. That, that's the normal course of life, it seems sometimes. But what the Lord is speaking about here is, these are people, they hear the word, yes, I like this. I want this. I received it. It's true. It's right. I agree. But then as any, any sort of persecution, any sort of trouble arises because of the word, they're gone. Am I reading that right? He who received the seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy that he has no root in himself. It has no root. Look at this. Endures only for a while. All my life as a Christian, not all my life, but in my early years as a Christian, maybe because of some of the Christian circles I ran in, we were, I, I, I would occasionally hear, and not necessarily from this pulpit in this church, but, but, I, but I would hear maybe on the radio or whatever, or the opinions of other Christians, whatever, and somebody would have come to church 
somebody would have like responded with an altar call or something like that. Somebody would have maybe prayed a prayer that was led by a preacher or something like that or a preacher on TV and asked Jesus to come into their heart. And maybe even like right from the get-go, someone gave them a Bible and they attended a few church services and whatever. But, but then perhaps somewhere along the way, they realized, look, this, this might get you in trouble. People are going to mock you. People are going to think you're unintelligent. People are going to think you're unscientific. People are uh, going to think you're a simpleton. People are going to think you're superstitious. People are going to think that you believe in fairy tales. And the mockery and all of these things begin to come. And all of a sudden, that person's not there anymore. And then what does the church sometimes say? Oh, but at least they're saved. At least they're saved because they prayed that prayer and they asked Jesus to come into their heart. Listen, that runs completely afoul of the parable of the sower. Does it not? Right? This is, this is why I said this sort of hearer, the stony ground hearer, there is insidiousness at work in all of this. Because this is the person that any trouble comes in their life. And boom, they're gone. And the clear implication of the parable of the sower is that the ones who are in the kingdom and only the ones who are in the kingdom are the ones who when they hear the word, they receive it like this. Yes, but their lives go on to bear fruit. One of the fruits by direct inference being when persecution arises, they stand firm. That's not to say that we might not have a moment or we might not have an experience where Peter, right? Classic example, right? But, but Peter was restored by the Lord and became one of his most stalwart servants in all of church history, right? So, so we certainly have our moments, but the general course of our lives is that when trouble, this mockery, this persecution arises for the word, listen, not only do we stand firm, but I believe for the Christian, it actually fires us up, right? Because what does the word teach? We've been blessed. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Right? And, and Peter and first Peter, Peter being himself, someone who, when the heat was on, ran away, turns up, uh, writes first Peter. When you read first Peter, the main subject of that whole epistle, this is written by Peter. The main subject of the whole epistle is, uh, uh, to, to endure through hardships and through trials and to even recognize that you have been counted worthy of suffering as the Lord himself did. So these rocky ground hearers are those, though, they hear it, they like it, they agree with it. They may even maybe in sort of a, a private and safe kind of way respond to it. But there's really nothing there. There's nothing there. Because when trouble comes because of the word. In other words, when trouble comes because of the word they've received with joy. When trouble comes because of the gospel, they're gone. And yet the modern Christian who's not well-versed in the Bible may say, yeah, well, that person's saved though because they prayed this prayer or whatever. Listen, what's the parable of the sower about? It's about who's in the kingdom and who's not, right? The third one is like this. What's it say? Um, oh, I wanted to make one more point. Whenever, little, little, little uh, tidbit here. When, when, when you read through the Bible and you see a word that's repeated, 
pay special attention to that word because something is being employed. Verse 20 and 21, listen. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. What word was repeated? Well, yes, but... Okay, what other word was repeated? It begins with an I and it's long. Immediately! Right? Yes, very good. Let the man speak. Immediately. Right? Immediately. Right? So in other words... What, what's implied by that? There's no root. It's like they heard it and they liked it. And yeah, immediately I like that. But then as soon as trouble comes along, no, immediately I'm gone. There's no depth of commitment. And that's the whole point of rocky ground. There's no depth of root in the plant. No roots are dug. No soul searching happens. You know what this possibly, quite possibly represents is the, ready? The repentanceless call to simply pray a prayer and receive Jesus as your Savior. The call of the gospel that has no challenge concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. When Jesus said the Holy Spirit has come, that He might convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And if we're going to preach hand in hand with our Lord Jesus, we preach about sin and our vulnerability and our, 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 our culpability because of it. We preach about His righteousness, which is absolute and we fall short of it. And we preach about His judgment, which is certain and coming upon the whole world. And this brings a person who really receives it to a fear of that all-consuming fire that God is. And then what? The goodness of God leads him where? Repentance. 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 See, see, that's why, listen, that's why when you preach the gospel, you don't cut through sin and judgment and consequence. You don't do anyone any good to like beg and pull and make it easy for them and do whatever you have to do to just get them to make that conversion immediately. Because just as easily as you were able to bring them along, so the wicked one can bring them right back. Because there's no root. There's no depth of earth. We must be careful when we preach the gospel to contextualize it for our hearers so they understand that the gospel is not just a way to make their lives on earth better, but the gospel is God's loving and gracious solution for the problem of their sin. Amen. Now, verse 22 he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. You know why this one is insidious and dangerous, maybe even more so than the previous one, is because this person's not described as going anywhere. This person grows up right alongside the plant. 
You go out and plant a cornfield and all the weeds grow up right next to the corn and you leave them there. You're not going to produce any fruit. You're not going to produce any corn. But the plants are all still growing there side by side because you've left them there. This is the person that they hear the word, right? Uh, He who received seed among thorns. The idea of thorns is like a weed. Weed is maybe too simple to describe the word thorn. But the idea is it's a plant that's growing right next to the plant that you want to get the fruit from that's competing with your plant for the nutrients that are naturally designed by God into the soil through all those processes that the Lord set in place. So, now he who received the seed among thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it and it becomes unfruitful, right? It doesn't say that he doesn't believe it. It doesn't say that he, well, but he doesn't really believe it. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that he doesn't agree with it. It doesn't even say that he doesn't like it. What it says is the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. How are riches deceitful? Think about that. How are riches deceitful? It can be obvious, like if they're ill-gotten and we think that they're okay. Right. That's obvious. But that's not really deceitful. A criminal, a, a, a murderous a murderous, conniving thief who happens to be rich. There's nothing deceitful about that. It's obvious. But how are riches deceitful? When we come about riches, even if we come about them right and come about them by, I mean, I mean, I mean, money in and of itself innately is not evil, right? In First Timothy chapter six, the rich among the Christians are given instructions on how they ought to live in their riches and what they ought to do with it, they're not condemned and banned from the church. They have a special responsibility because God has afforded them a certain blessing in this life. But how how can riches be deceitful? They can become like a false sense of security for us. If you were here on Thursday night for either of the Amos studies, you have a blatant understanding of how Riches become deceitful. Amos, the prophet, spoke to the northern tribes of Israel who were prosperous and rich and militarily successful and and they had people in the country who were just rich and they had houses here and they had houses there and they had palaces and everything was going great except God was really angry with them because they worshipped idols. But the riches were deceitful and God even said, bring your offerings Bring your tithes. Bring them to the altars because I know you love to do that in some divine sarcasm. Right? But the riches were deceitful because they took the fact that they were prosperous as indicative of the fact that everything was all right between them and the Lord. Sounds strangely like the modern American prosperity gospel, doesn't it? Where, where, Where blessing is like shown to be like the manifestation of the fact that like you have this great relationship with God. Even though the great heroes of the faith that you read about in the Bible were often destitute and wandered and and everything else, right? But riches are deceitful in that way. And so what happens with the hearers who are depicted by the seed that falls among the thorns, uh, what happens with them is they hear the word of God 
And implied, I think, is it's not stated that they reject it. I think what's implied is they're kind of like the previous ones and that they receive it and they, they take it and they're okay with it. But they never go on to any fruitfulness. It's not real faith because they love this world too much. Look, you cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus not say this. You cannot serve God and money. Either you will be ruled by the one or you will be ruled by the other. Nothing in between. The possession of money can be something that is used for tremendous good, to bless others and, and to, to, to give gifts to others or to support others and, and invest in things that advance the purposes of the kingdom of God, give to the church, give to ministries, help the poor, help those who are destitute, help those who are suffering. There's a tremendous amount of good that you can do with, with riches of this world, but they can be deceitful and we need to guard against it. Right? Now, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke off the fruitfulness of the word. Let me ask you a question, Bible student. Who's in the, if someone just came to you and said, who's saved and who's not? For most of us, probably myself included, my answer would be those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's correct. Those are the ones who are saved. But be careful. Because the way the Bible describes those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is often very different than the way people describe that. The parable of the sower describing who's in the kingdom and who is not speaks of fruitfulness. The wayside hearers obviously bear no fruit. The rocky ground hearers bear no fruit. The thorny ground hearers bear no fruit. The parable goes on to say, but he who received seed on good ground, he's the person who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Who's in the kingdom of God and who's not? Those who believe and their lives Show it. You want to see something interesting? Shake your head, yes. Turn to, uh, turn to Romans chapter 2. I don't know, there might be a third week of this coming up. Because I, 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 I have a whole bunch of things I can say about this. And someone just authorized me from the congregation to take my time. Raise your hand if you want me to rush. Good. Raise your hand if you want me to take my time. Of the take, the take your times have it. Good. Good, Tony. That's good. Good job. Good job, brother. Yes. All right. Now, um, Romans. You know what's going on in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2? In Romans chapter 1, there's this incredible condemnation of the world, you know, because they, they, they rejected God. Even though you could see everything you need to know about the Lord to know that He's there, simply in His creation, 
even his eternal power and Godhead. It's all, it's all, it's all innately known just by the fact of creation. You can see, man did what? Nah, not interested. Made, uh, took rocks and stones and animals and made statues and still does this and worships all sorts of other things instead of the creator, who's blessed forever, by the way. So, so, uh, as a result, God gave them up and declares him to be without excuse because when he had the knowledge of God. He turned away from the knowledge of God and worshipped images and idols instead. So chapter 2 of the book of Romans says this, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know, and I'm only reading this because there's a verse coming up. Is, is really what I want to focus on, but I like to contextualize things. So, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, which we did talk about it a minute ago? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Now, note the sentence doesn't end with that. The sentence continues like this. Eternal life to those who pray and ask Jesus to come into their heart. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. Eternal life to those, eternal life, eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Eternal life, life that never ends. God will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in... What's the next word? Wow. What's that? That's called fruit. That's called someone who hears the word and they receive it and they understand it and they bear fruit. Paul is not preaching a different gospel that says salvation is by works. But what Paul is doing is he's describing the person who truly believes as someone who has works in their life which show that they have truly believed. It's the same thing that James was talking about when he said what? Faith without works is... May I... Also observe, shake your head, yes. May I also observe that verse 6 is actually a quotation of Scripture. That's why, at least in my New King James Version, it's in italics. Who will render to each one according to his deeds. So to make this point, just to make sure you know that the Apostle Paul isn't like inconsistent or crazy or something like that, he's actually quoting from the Psalms, and it's possible that the Psalm itself is a quotation from something written in Job chapter 34. Though it's not verbatim, but maybe the psalmist had the same thing on his mind. That God renders to each according to his deeds. We're not saved by works. The book of Romans, the whole point of the book of Romans is to point out that we've been saved by God's grace 
through faith. God is just and the justifier of him who has faith in Christ Jesus. But may I say to you, the person who is truly of faith is the one who, by patient continuance in doing good, seeks for glory, honor, and immortality. In the modern American church, if you ask people who's saved and who's not, and their answer was, well, here's who I think is saved. Those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, you would probably be asked not to go to that church anymore. Even though you're quoting Scripture. What does Paul have in view here? He has in view the good soil hearers. Because the good soil hearers are the ones who hear the Word of God. They understand it. And they go on to produce fruit in their lives. I don't often do this, but I happen, I happen to regularly bring my MacArthur Study Bible into my pulpit. And uh, there is a note that at some point in a reading of this in years past, I underlined and put a big star next to this sentence that he wrote, which is an explanation of this verse that I just think succinctly states it better than I would. Ready? The deeds of the redeemed are not the basis of their salvation, but the evidence of it. They are not perfect and are prone to sin, but there is undeniable evidence of righteousness in their lives. Thank you. I got an amen out of that. I, me too. Amen. You get it? It's not that our works are the basis for being saved, but our works are the fruit the product, the evidence. Hey, fruit, evidence, the result. The pro- that, that's the concept here. Really having faith produces something in the person's life. If a person really believes, listen, you should be able to say of a Christian easily, he does good. She does good. See, we get it wrong. We jump ahead to Romans chapter 3 and we say, we get the quotation from the Old Testament. There is none who does good. No, not one. Well, of course, we know that when it comes to justifying ourselves, nobody does good to the absolute sense that would enable them to justify themselves before God. But every true Christian, listen, every person who hears the word either blows it off, likes it, but then runs away when there's any trouble, receives it and stays there but doesn't really believe because they care more about the world and their money and everything else, or they actually really believe it and you know it because they produce fruit in their lives. Now, I haven't even begun to talk to you about what fruit is in a specific sense. I've got it all right here, but I'm out of time. So so guess what? There's going to be a part three. Sorry about that. But you want to know that now, right? And you don't have to wait for me. You can look into it for yourself and discover it for next week. But I'll tell you right now, next week we're going to come back to this and we're going to talk about fruit. Is that okay? We're going to have a little horticulture lesson next week. Is that the right word? We're going to, we're going to discuss fruit and come back next week because it's a, it's a heavy topic. You never want to infer or imply that works have anything to do with bringing salvation to a person. Uh, but they do have an important place in the life of someone who is truly faithful. And you need to understand the distinction between the two. And so we take the time next week to make sure we have that understanding, right?
Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much that we have this time together here today. Thank you, Lord, for each of my brothers and sisters who are gathered here. Thank you even maybe for those who have come in who who don't have that faith yet. Um, But I pray, Lord God, by the power of your spirit, you would bring them to true saving faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that they might be good soil hearers who understand and receive your word and go on in their lives to producing good fruit, which glorifies and honors you. You're the vine. We are just branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We'll read that next week, Lord, if you permit us to get back together. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to understand these things, believe them, and help us to glorify you with the lives you've given us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace, which sustains us from moment to moment. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.